sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Get in touch with us at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Got a letter today from Carrie. She says, I grew up a 90s country girl and have learned a lot about rock and roll from listening to the two of you. Thanks, Carrie. Well, Good night, everybody. And, and we, we both know a lot about country music because we both worked in and around it at different periods of our career. I spent a lot of time in it. So uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But she says, I was wondering if you could do uh, an episode that goes back to my roots for me. I remember hearing that Shania Twain traded husbands with her best friend. Is that possibly <laughs> the full story? Thanks for everything. <laughs> Keep telling stories. Oh, my God. We get to talk about Shania Twain. And... And Carrie, he thanks for your letter because also the end of your your letter means that you li- listen to the entire episode when we say keep telling stories at the end. I, so I think I, I know you're not just excited about that. I know you're also not just excited about Shania no, Twain. No, no, I'm not excited about Shania Twain. I'm <laughs> excited to talk about a douchebag that she was married to. That's I mean, fine. We, we got to start with her, but we'll get right. we'll get to him. I mean, he is a key ingredient to her, right? Of both her career and the story, but. If we're going to talk about her, we got to start in Canada, and it, her whole story is fascinating. And, and there's a lot of trauma and drama in her backstory, but there is this big question of her heritage. Do you remember this? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. So this it's is like, like Elizabeth. It's like Elizabeth Warren, yeah. but different. <laughs> it's like politics, but music is weirdly like that. So yeah. th- this is funny because I mean, this is not the the rumor and innuendo and the controversy we're here to talk about, but uh, it, it, it dogs her from the beginning of her career. The question is whether she's a native, American. whether she's native American and yeah. whether or not she's 50% native American to be precise. That's and Let me explain why we've got to get so granular on this. And, and <laughs> this is so fun. I'm really, I bet Carrie, when she wrote this letter was, uh, hoping that we would talk, of, we would talk about British history from 1794 because that's what we're going to do right now. Um, what is what is <laughs> happening to my face? What are we doing? So okay. 1794, Britain and the U.S. are fighting. Okay, and the, still the one. How are we going to get to that, dude? What's happening? Okay, we're so, we're in the 18th century. The country's really young, and uh, you know, because 1776, right, is when things happen here. So it's 1794, and the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, technically. But war, like most things, is messy as hell. So it means the fighting may not be happening, but there's still plenty of stuff to work out between parties. So the. This all leads to some back and forth where eventually this document that is designed by Alexander Hamilton, you may know him from the musical Hamilton, and George Wicked. Washington's involved, lots of big names. Eventually, this document gets negotiated by a diplomat named John Jay. Now, the official title of the doc is The Treaty of Amity, Commerce, and Navigation between His Britannic Majesty and the United States of America. But fuck saying that shit over and over. So people just started calling it the Jay Treaty because of it's John the Jay. Jay. It's the Jay Treaty. So oh, my god! Do you remember this a little bit from, from history? American history. Yeah. yeah, okay. So it's big and complicated, and there's like a whole bunch that we're not going to talk about because this is a rock and roll podcast, right? Um, people get pissed off about different things, blah, 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 blah. But none of that matters to us. There's just one section we've got to pull out for our purposes, and that is article number three, which states... Quote, it is agreed that it shall at all times be free to his majesty's subjects and to the citizens of the U.S. and also to the Indians dwelling on either side of the said boundary line. 
uh, to freely pass and repass by land or inland navigation into the respective territories and countries of the two parties on the continent of America, blah, 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 blah. Basically, as a result of the Jay Treaty, native Indians born in Canada can have like almost the same rights as natural born Americans. If okay, if okay. they can prove 50% blood quantum. Now, they even qualify for like public benefits and domestic tuition rates and like stuff that even legal immigrants can't have. They're, it's a sweet deal. Right? Okay, so what does this have to do with man? I, I feel like a woman. <laughs> so, fast forwarding all the way to 1991, when she gets a recording contract in Nashville, she will fill out paperwork and claim that she has 50% Native American blood, and she gets the J Treaty treatment. She was not required to obtain a work visa or a green card. So, all right. Well, what's the problem? Somebody figures out a few years into her career that the man who raised her was 100% Ojibwe, which is a, a Canadian tribe. But he raised her. He wasn't her biological father. Oh, father, stepfather? Yeah. So we- he's Weezer the- song? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so stepfather. So this breaks around like 1996 because she wins an award for outstanding musical achievement from first Americans in the arts. And she's starting to get famous. And her damn paternal grandmother gets interviewed in the newspaper and accuses her of lying about her indigenous ancestry. And Wow. Yeah, it's like a big deal for a little bit. And it's funny because this feels more 2023 than 1996 to me. Like, this is the sort of shit we are still right. wasting our time on, right? Yeah, sure. Right. Uh, but what it does is it... it, it, it shadows her and dogs her because over and over in her career, we're going to talk about this. She gets questioned for her authenticity, right? Yeah. Is she, and this is like a, is she lying about this? What else is she lying about sort of situation? Right. Right. But so she had a, didn't have a great childhood. No, her childhood, her childhood sucked. Yes. That's part of the, story of her right she's born eileen regina edwards she lives in windsor ontario she's 1965 is when she's born her even her stepfather was not great he was abusive to her mother they struggled for money there's been all of this sort of background blue collar background thing that has been put on her as part of her narrative partly to justify her as a country music star right because that's the thing country music stars have rough upbringings, right? I mean, that you know, think about it. Loretta Lynn, you know, if you're cut in this mold, you come from poverty and you raise out of it and you sing about it and all this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Not not now, which has become like the the like the afterbirth of like uh Cowboy by Kid Rock or whatever. Or Kid the Ro- afterbirth or, of or, or a Kid- lot of people would say the afterbirth of Shania Twain. Of Shania Twain making this music because everything before that was a lot of three chords and heartbreak. Right, 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 right. Like even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't like, even if it's a put on, people would do it. But uh, otherwise, it it really was. This is a key part of everything we're talking about because it's it comes into play with the producer she chooses, who is also the life partner she chooses, which we're going to get to in a moment. So. Here are a few of the key pieces of like the lore, the backstory that we hear about Shania. Uh, it, there, there's this story she would tell about how she would sing in bars to make money for the family, even when she was like as young as eight, which is some glass castle shit. Um, yeah, 
she <laughs> supposedly took a job as a late teenager with her stepdad's reforestation company, and she'll tell stories in interviews where she'll say things like, I would sit alone in the forest with my dog and a guitar and would just write songs, right? I mean, you can hear sort of how she's trying to build this mythology. She is this working class, authentic, salt-of-the-earth girl next door who just happens to accidentally become this sex bomb pop star, right? Sex bomb. I love that word. So she's in the woods, like, like <laughs> with her Davy dog, Crockett, yeah. whatever is happening, this tall tale of, of something. She's planting trees. Like, so, okay. So how does she get to Nashville? Cause that's how this whole thing works. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Whether or not this, like I went to the bar at age eight story is all true. There is evidence that she was singing very young. She actually gets on this country music TV show in, in the CBC when she's like 13 and in high school, she'll be in some different cover bands. And then there's like this other layer of her bootstrap legacy, right? So she will say that she cleaned house for a singing coach to pay for singing lessons. And then she starts to get some local notice as early as like 1984. She gets connected to doing some background vocals for Canadian artists. Her career is slowly gaining traction. And then in 1987, that mom and stepdad, the aforementioned, are killed in a car accident. And she will return to her hometown to raise her younger siblings. Oh man, what the fuck having to raise your your siblings is your oh. Yeah. Here's what she does. One of the jobs she takes, and this is again part of the lore, is a job at a resort. So like, she like, is like 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 making like singing at yeah, a resort. Like like yeah, like, just you know, doing dinner time entertainment or whatever. Yeah. So she's doing stuff, but there's also this another story that will come up in interviews later that she she will trace back to this, right? About oh, how yeah. Do you, yeah. re- do you remember this about man? Yeah. I feel like a woman. Right, right, right. It's it's about it's about the resort because there were drag shows. Yeah. So uh, I mean, this is a great example of how she weaves all of this stuff into these stories she will tell throughout her career. And if you go back and and watch and read stuff that she said, and and so she puts her dreams on hold in the last few years of the eighties. And now we get to the early nineties, right? Because we, I, I told you 91, I think is when she goes to Nashville. So her youngest siblings have flown the coop. She's back looking to get some traction in her career and she cuts a demo and she gets a label showcase and Mercury Nashville will eventually sign her. Right. And then, so everyone remember her name is it Shania, which is by the way, Kind of a kick-ass name. She was Eileen. <laughs> so that so at some point, Shania means on my way. That's what she says. Which is not But yeah, true. that's not even true. For If you look right. that up, that's not what it means. Uh, right. and, and she is hearkening back to the her stepfather's tribe to say that it's in that native language and all that stuff. Yeah. And people don't, some people probably don't know, like she put out a record, she, she got that deal, she put out a record and it was a bomb. Nothing, not a sex bomb. No, but it was a bomb. It was, it was not good. People did it not didn't like work. it. Yeah, no. uh, it, it does something though. It does something for her. It attracts the attention of one important person, even if nobody else listened to it. One guy. Oh my, gosh, to oh my it. gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! <laughs> you ready? Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay. I mean, let, uh, I, let's talk about Mutt Lang.
Matt Lang is Robert John Lang. Not like I know this by heart, but holy good God. Um, as a Gen Xer who had LPs and cassettes, you opened them up and you saw and you were like, huh. So Mutt Lang produced Highway to Hell, Back in Black, and uh, High and Dry, and Pyromania. He must be the best producer ever in, in the in history the of the world. <laughs> Right, right, what right. a nickname, too, right? Like, if you opened up those record sleeves and it said Robert John Lang, you'd be like, whatever, what a sleeper. What right. a snooze it's just, fest. It's just a nickname he, he got as a kid. And how he learned to do everything is that he was in a band. He, he listened to, like, Slim Whitman. Like, so he's an older older guy. He was in a high school band. Like, he was in bands that are, like, lost to history that people don't really have. But because of that, he got to he got to learn how to produce music and how to record it because he was trying to do it. There was a band called Hocus. This is a band he was in. Table where he is and how old he is. You get through the seventies, like most everything is not remembered except he did the Graham Parker LP, um, uh, Heat Treatment, which I own on vinyl. Just fun fact. <laughs> oh my god! And then the um, he wrote and produced the song for the Ipswich Town. Uh, oh my god! Football club. This story right? is so funny too. Like, is there an American equivalent for this? Like, I don't know how to explain it in America. We are kickers. We kick the ball. We play with the ball. <laughs> Super Bowl I'm shuffle. Like kick by. No, that's the that, that's the one they made fun of it on SNL. Yeah, it's the Super Bowl. Uh, shuffle. Yeah, but that is sort of the comparison, right? I mean, like, so if if you don't know what we're talking about, like, there's this tradition. It's the first thing to know is there's a thing called the FA Cup, the Football Association Challenge Cup, and it was played for the first time as far back as 1871, right? So it's like the oldest national football competition in the world. And in the 70s and 80s, there there got to be this like pop cultural tradition thing around the FA Cup final where teams would create songs before they would play in the game and they would sing it. And there's an article in the show notes that compiles a bunch of them, like Good, Bad, and Ugly from the heyday of this, if you just want to go like get lost in this weird thing. If you watch Ted Lasso, I think this is easier to understand, right? If you're just an American who doesn't know soccer, like me. Um, because you see some of this sort of, like, the spirit of this in the way things operate even today. But this is a big deal that Mutt gets this job. This guy who's, like, sort of on the up as a producer, um, but not that big yet, and he gets to create the song. Um, that these dudes sing and and here it is
it's around this time where the stuff starts to happen. Like, yeah, it's crazy that the football thing precedes, like, sort of his break. And I don't know if it's directly related, but, like, all of a sudden the career picks up. I mean, the most biggest, the second biggest band in the world, Boomtown Rats. <laughs> I just wanted to be funny about the whole thing. And, and, Bob Geldof! And, Bob Geldof, and, shout out. And, and, and fucking ACDC. And eventually Def Leppard. For God's do, do, sake. Okay, so do you think it's fair to say that ACDC really becomes the ACDC that we know, like when we say ACDC, that what we're talking about is muttlang, sort of, the muttlang of it all? Well, uh, here's, here's why, yes. Highway to Hell and Back in Black, just the sheer power and intensity of no filler. There's like well, no shitty songs. And you on, point on out something really interesting LPs. about those two records in particular, using those as sort of the exhibits, is they're two different singers. Absolutely. They're two different singers, and it should have failed somewhere, right? In in any way, but but neither like it doesn't flop at all. Like back in black just kind of picks right up where Highway to Hell are there it's touchstones in rock and roll history. Oh, and and mutt is it, the common ingredient, right? And, and like I right. didn't know this until I started digging around in this, but this is actually a favorite subject among rock and roll nerds. Have you like had you dived into this before about how much what exactly Mutt does for the bands as a producer? Yes. Once once hysteria came out, I was like Huh? <laughs> like they, man, that that freaking high and dry, like that that Def Leppard record. Yeah, it, it's, and then and then you listen to Rocket. They totally agreed to be worked over as a pop band. Yeah, doing like ballads and stuff. Love bites. Um, talk about rumor and innuendo. Did you ever hear that at the end of Love Bites on Hysteria? That there's a very quiet voice saying, Jesus of Nazareth, go to hell. <laughs> no, that seems like I should have known that, though. That seems like core Brian text, man. Does somebody want to bleak that to me at youth group? Like, I haven't thought about it in eons. <laughs> and I was thinking about, love me, love me. So, I mean, it, it, what we're talking uh. about, though, is this idea of, like, did Mutt change these bands? Are they, is it Mutt we're hearing more than it's ACDC or especially later Def Leppard? And if you want to get into this debate, we don't need to do it here, but you can, I, I put, some stuff in the show notes of just like message boards that exist on the internet. And I, I put one, there's more than one. If you want to Google it, uh, where people are having this discussion, this is like just a, a point of contention for rock and roll fans of a certain period and of a certain time. And it's, it's really interesting to read. So, I mean, I'm sort of interested in your take on what you think Mutt really did for these bands. Did you see some kind of monster, the Metallica thing? Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. people, it vilified Bob Rock because people got to see how much, when he's talking to James Hetfield and he's like, da 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 and he's giving him the yeah, vocal yeah. melody and you realize that that is not a member of the band. So, so there's lyrics like he he writes lyrics because he's a songwriter. He, he gets like, co-writes, and we haven't talked about that yet, but we will. But like he is a oh songwriter, and so he is he gets co-writes on every song on Hysteria and and something else, like maybe Pyromania, like ser- a couple of the records. He's he gets everything, which is crazy. Do, like, but technically, like he's not being a jerk. Like vocal melodies and song arrangements and and things like that are completely things that are getting in your fingers into the art 
So, and there absolutely. is this discussion about him actually helping Brian and Bond be the singers that they are in ACDC, that he is the guy sort of helping them figure out how to do that. And the argument partly is the consistency of the band after the two singers, you know, after you have a second singer step in. Highway to Hell is like a watermark. It's something started with ACDC. They became an enormous band with that record. Oh, yeah, and it for wouldn't sure. have happened without those knobs being twisted. Well, yeah. Clearly. And so there is this argument that I've seen a lot online that ACDC becomes a pilot, really, for his work with Def Leppard because ACDC will end up backing away from using him in the early 80s because he yeah. is so... I don't even think it's domineering. I think it's just like, if you're going to work with him, he's going to sculpt you. And so... He then goes on to really shape or reshape Def Lepp entirely. Do you think that's true? Yeah, and I'm a complete dork because there's this guitar interactive interview with Phil Collin, who looks amazing. He's like a brick <laughs> shit house. Like he like works out every every moment of every day when he's not sleeping or eating or playing. Like he's just like whatever. But he said he said that Mutt was the key, and he was honest. And I was trying to learn how to play photograph because that song's amazing. Yes, it is. Uh, so I was watching <laughs> Phil Collin interviews. Um, but anyway. So, so I, I, okay, here's the quote. I found it, what you were talking about. Th this is what he says. Quote, that whole album, he really taught us how to sing and play. I think we'd be an okay band, and I think we'd been in a good band, but he made it something great. Quote, he deserves all the credit. That's from Phil Collin from Def Leppard. And man, it goes back to the show. It goes back to the show we had. We talked about Meatloaf, and the other oh half God. of Meatloaf was Jim Steinman. And, and they, Jim was they bring him in on this, don't they? Jim Jim worked on Hysteria. The, okay, so the yeah. way I understand this, I had forgotten this that it was Mutt, and then Mutt goes to who is he producing? He has to go produce somebody else, like a pop man. Heart, a heart. Well, no, was it Heartbeat City? It was a Cars record. Oh, the Cars. That's what it is. So he has to go He has to go produce the Cars. And so they bring Steinman in, and then I guess that didn't work at all. And so they bring Mutt back. Right, right, right. And so there's the drummer's accident in the middle of this, which right, just, right, right, right. just stops. And that, there was career. an episode on that, too. which Right. <laughs> which is so fun. We talked about that. But, like, so it wasn't a, a total lock on how that record was was happening like at all. So he, so he does this, right? He does ACDZ. He goes to Def Leppard. He, he puts his fingerprints all over a couple of the biggest bands of those periods. And then, I mean, his CV as a producer in the eighties is, is pretty enormous. I'll just roll through it here. Right. So he gets back in black. He does foreigner four in 1981, Def Leppard High and Dry, for those about to rock, we salute you, ACDC, Def Leppard Pyromania, he does Heartbeat City, you were correct, Def Leppard yeah. Hysteria, he, he does Romeo's Daughter, remember those guys? He does Billy Ocean, he does a Billy Ocean record, a Brian Adams record, the Brian Adams Waking the Neighborhood record, or Waking Up the Neighbors, I think it's what it's called, uh, which was a big record that's been sort of forgotten about, I don't know, like, I was talking about this with my wife, uh, or with someone recently, it's 91, uh, about Brian Adams, and how there's a guy who I would 1,000% enjoy watching play his entire catalog. Like, yeah. And he just, I don't want to say he's forgotten because I don't think he's forgotten, but he's just been sort of, 
I don't know, relegated to like this different class, but I mean, huge, huge and influential. Um, and then he even does a Michael Bolton record in 93. Oh my gosh, that's funny. He wrote songs too, man. He wrote well, songs. Yeah, we hadn't even gotten Jeezy. to this, dude, which is crazy. Maybe not the best Lover Boy song, oh, but no. maybe the worst best Lover Boy song. Did he do Love It Every Minute of It? Love and Every Minute of It. <laughs> How did I know that's Whoa. what you were going to say? And then he goes on to doesn't he have like Britney Spears writing credits and Backstreet yeah. Boys and he like he works with Billy Ray Cyrus it's crazy and we cannot leave this part of the conversation without talking about Heart. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We have to because he wrote "All I Want to Do Is Make Love to You." He wrote it twice, dude. He wrote yeah, that yeah. fucking song two times. I know. I know. So he, he, this he pitched is- it multiple places and it's weird it is the weirdest story i've ever heard i mean this is my favorite part of this episode i'm just gonna say we are headed to some great places we've already been great places this is this is my favorite part he writes this song in the 70s and he pitches it to don henley and don henley says no and the song is called all i want to do all right, that's important. Yeah, right. It's a different song. Yeah, title. the 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 basic arrangements the same, but the lyrics are different, and and it is all I want to do. Henley doesn't take it. He ends up selling the song to Dobie Gray. Right to drift away, Dobie Gray. Sure. Give me the B boys, be my yeah. soul. That guy. Right. 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 Before not Uncle Cracker, the original singer of that song. Uh, and oh man, you just gave me the PTSD <laughs> of knowing the Uncle Cracker exists. Shit, Dude, Brian. Did we did you were, were we working together on the Uncle Cracker shows? Like I worked multiple Uncle Cracker shows. He was always no. very kind. He was a very kind person to me. Oh, I hated those songs. So God. he records it in 1979. And it's Dobie just Gray. Dobie Gray. And it's just a generic love song. And then, this is ballsy, dude. He rewrites it and retitles it, All I Wanna Do, W-A-N-N-A. And he sells it to heart with the most bizarre, love-lust, baby-daddy infertility storyline of all time. I mean, I think we've touched on this in the heart episode. We probably brought this up. Uh, this song wrecked my brain when I heard it as like, I don't know, 11 or 12. And I was like, what? Make love yeah. in a hotel and- room. I mean, it, if you listen to the lyrics, this song is batshit crazy. He accepted with a smile.
guess that they take it because they feel pressured because of the pedigree. Like, I mean, Mutt's a big deal at this point. And it's 85. They're having to make those, like, these dreams and all that stuff. Right. Pop, pop songs. And, 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 you know, it was a... Uh, it was a song that was written for Don Henley. So, I mean, there's just a lot of like prestige around it. And so they are like, well, I guess we'll take it. And then it becomes this accidental hit that they famously hate. And Anne wouldn't perform it. I think she put it back in her set in like 2017. But like for decades, she would not play this song live. And it was a massive hit that I was playing on the radio in Morning Drive in like 2004. Like, it's a big song, dude. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Biscuit. Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheated Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. Uh, okay, great, Brian. Now, can we have Mutt Lang swipe right so we can just get <laughs> him in this sex bomb? I want it like what we originally, what Carrie wanted to talk about. Yeah, that's, was, that's true. We got a little distracted. I knew that was going to happen it. with Mutt. Okay, yeah. so at some point in all of this production and songwriting in the early 90s, Mutt is handed or comes across this record by Shania Twain. I, I do, for context, want to read how Rolling Stone and the artist bio for Shania Twain describes this album because it does it better than I can. At first, Twain was presented as a harmless novelty. The cover of her first album portrays her in a fur-lined parka next to a wolf. And the music is Conveyor Belt Nashville Fair, sung with the Southern Trail. If you have not seen this album cover, I had to go back and look at it. I was like, what? Yeah. And it is great. I, she is she is standing like, it looks like it was like a cut scene from white thing <laughs> like it is very strange um but mutt sees or hears or both something in all of this right and now look we can't overstate the importance of this relationship it was country but like man it wasn't and it was pop music and and by kind of are you ruining the genre by mixing them together like now we could probably say well sure but it's clearly because of Mutt Lang, who's the same guy who took um, bringing on the heartbreak Def Leppard to, <laughs> to hysteria with like electronic sounds and like clearly to me just sounded like a freaking drum machine. Like yeah. those didn't actually yeah. sound like drums, you know. Right. And it's not just one thing with her. I mean, Mutt becomes a big part of this. Uh, because of the rock and roll production, but there are other things that are, like sort of point to her or make her this harbinger of like the death of traditional country music. One of them is that she's Canadian. We've already talked about this, right? She's not American, and right. country music is marketed as an American invention. She also is very sexy and not ashamed of it. 
and sex bomb. So <laughs> the, this is before female country artists really did that. I mean, if you think about the history, I mean, you know, there's a sexualization of Dolly Parton early on, but for the most part, that's something that's put on them as opposed to something they own, you know? And right, so yeah. to have exactly. this artist in the early to mid 90s who's in this genre, who is taking control of how she is presented, at least to a certain degree, it, it's breaking a lot of molds. It's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And it it is also selling like hotcakes. He wanted to work with her. And they they did have phone calls. And they met at Fanfare, which if nobody knows what that is. <laughs> I saw this it, detail and I was like, bro, it, are we going to get totally distracted talking about what Fanfare is for people who don't know? CMA Fest is what Fanfare was. So CMA Fest is like a three-day freak show with with concerts at Nissan Stadium. But it used to be at the fairgrounds where Jerry Lawler would wrestle. It was a totally different scene. At some point, it was kind of low-key, and you could get really close to people. Obviously, in the 90s, Garth had kind of blown up, so um, it yeah, had changed mean, a lot of that. But that's where they met. They met at Fanfare. You're bringing up something that is, I think, sort of interesting context for the larger story, which is this idea... And I have always said this when people say, like, you you rock and roll guy worked in country? And, like, how did you negotiate that? And I would say, like, country is a very fun genre to work in from the radio side when radio was still even kind of radio because it held on the longest to this traditional reliance and relationship with radio. So it was much more accessibility to the artists, to the songs, to the record labels. And, and this is one of the big examples of that. They would, they would basically throw a party in Nashville and sort of pull the velvet ropes down and let people mingle. And so there was this whole thing, right? So it is sort of interesting, if you know that backstory, to know that that is where Shania and Mutt meet, this sort of like big citywide party in 93 when they're celebrating country music and they're doing different things and they get to spend some time together. Brian and I did work in country radio together. You just, you think it was fun. I just upped my medication to be honest. <laughs> so um, to be able to deal at all, but people uh, need to realize that Shania Twain was enormous. Fucking, like fucking massive. Like there's for, for a long time. You can't, and there's probably some folks who are a little younger or had just didn't pay attention at that time of their lives or whatever. But like, you couldn't get away from her. I mean, she was one of the biggest stars in the world. And the first record that Mutt and Shania will do together is 95's The Woman and Me. Mutt will pay for most of this. $700,000 said to be the most expensive country Gosh. album in, in the history of country music up to that point. Yeah, it's, she had a hit on her hands and she didn't tour, which was which was weird. This pissed people her. off. That's such a good point. So this is another thing, right? So, so women weren't sexualizing themselves in country music up to this point. That's definitely true. Anyone in country was touring. And this goes back to the fan fest thing, right? There's this accessibility with the fans. There's this, I'm coming to your town. There's this, I'm just like you, let's hang out sort of thing. And so while she did some things, especially early, they're not marketing her in the way that they market country artists. They're marketing her with music videos. And that is something you do with pop and rock artists, not with country artists. Not that they didn't exist, but that was not how you built the fan base. You went out on the road. And so it really wrinkled a lot of people because they could see what was happening. And she became the poster child for this this merging of pop music into country music. You know, we've talked a lot about the impresario roles in rock music, the Zingali 
uh, roles. And, and th- that goes back to this idea of like people controlling an artist in the background. And there becomes this perception that Shania is a product and not an artist, that Mutt created her. And this becomes part of the, the rumor and innuendo around him, right? The, the narrative sort of says he pulled the strings a little bit with ACDC, he pulled the strings a lot with Def Leppard, and then he pulled the strings entirely with Shania Twain. That's the idea, this perception that like, oh, well, Mutt created her, or Mutt wrote songs for her. Now, of course, she will say this isn't true. There's a a quote in Interview Magazine in 96. She says, quote, a lot of the ideas uh, of things that I was doing, I was working on before I even met Mutt. But when you get together with the right person, all the right things start to happen. So, I mean, what do you, what's your take on all of this? Uh, well, I kind of call bullshit on that, but, you know, <laughs> I, I'm sure she, I'm sure she's a great songwriter. So I'm. I mean, obviously, she has the she has the she has the gold records to show that she's I, a I great mean, she, songwriter. She's definitely, she definitely is not talentless. I mean, I think it needs to be very clear. I don't. I don't want to in any way, shape, or form say that I think like, you know, she was some puppet and could have done this with anyone. I do not think that's the case. I think what's interesting is the alchemy that you have when you put the two of them together. Right, right. It's not like he's Steve Albini and he just set, he mics the drums crazy and hangs out and just hits record like he's. Involving, Very involved. He's involving himself, like we had talked about earlier, in in melodies and lyrics and everything, and that that's really invasive. And we've we've like we've already discussed like hysteria, like pour some sugar on me. Good God, man! You were like you're younger than me, but I remember there was like I couldn't get away from it on MTV. Well, there's a like, reason that, too that that song has yeah. continues to resonate and continues to be. And everything, right? I mean, it's like as as crass you could make an argument uh, <laughs> as it is. It, it's like a song like kids know. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's ubiquitous. Right. It's everywhere. And part of that is the way that it feels like a party. I mean, that song feels like a party, and it is the production. And and I you know I don't think it is Joe Elliott and Phil Collin and everybody and what they were what they were channeling as much as it is what how that was taken and then put through filters by mud. I mean, I definitely think that's true. I'm not saying that they suck without him necessarily. I'm just saying taking that song from us, pretty good song to this sort of next level. I mean, I read what they said. We were a good band. We were an okay band. We weren't a great band until mud got a hold of us. I mean, they said that. Yeah. And the reason why, okay, here's like, if you listen to Def Leppard's high and dry, like just listen to the lyrics. So I also right. did this the other day because you sent me. You were like, "Dude, you got to prep for the show if you're if we're going to talk anything about Mutt Lang. You've got to you've got to listen to this record." So I listened to like half that record driving around town the other day in the rain, and that's a wild ride. Yeah, like you hear ACDC in High and Dry. There's for no sure. way for sure. There's no way around it, and it's like. I think that pour some sugar on me. You know how Hendrix Purple Haze has the excuse me while I kiss this guy. It's like right, the, right. the songs that have all the lyrics. Like there's someone says it wrong. Pour some sugar on me is, is such a weird freaking song for Def Leppard to sing. Like the entire song could be excuse me while I kiss this guy. Like <laughs> what exactly <laughs> are the lyrics? It's like the Oogum Boogum Boogum song. Like, what are are any of those real words? Like, you know, come or get it on. You know, it's like it doesn't it doesn't roll off like a regular Uh, rock song. Like the cadence is so different. 
Um, and, and if so you yeah. think about all of what you're saying, and you lay it on some of these massive Shania songs, and it, it, I can see the thread. Because I would say that as, I mean, while they're very different and they haven't had the same cultural impact, Pour Some Sugar on Me has some commonalities to something like Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Or, uh, you know, some of those other tunes that come in this later part of the 90s. And that's what happens next, right? So Woman in Me is a big deal. And then she becomes the biggest star in the world. 1997's Come On Over is like the sixth highest selling record ever. And she does finally tour on this record and it becomes one of the highest grossing country tours of all time. There are, remember when this used to happen? There are 16 songs on that album. And like (laughs) 12 of them get released as singles in some market. Like not all of them necessarily in the American radio market, but between Canada and America and stuff like 12 of the 16, three quarters of the record hits radio in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and so, okay, here's Mutt making a country artist sound like a pop artist. And just like you said, 12 songs off of 16, like how many singles were off Hysteria? I think there were seven. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and and like I said earlier with Highway to Hell and Back in Black, like pick the stinker. There's no, none of these songs. So what he does, he has some magic in those magic in those knobs whatever he's doing well and he well he he literally uses the knobs to take out the country sounding instruments for mixes that are shipped to international markets yeah so i mean when people say <laughs> mutt lang took you know like put the pop in country or took country and and turn it into something else he literally did she rides this album cycle out for like three years there's no new music until 2002's up record. By that point, it's not really country at all. And, and that's, I, you know, a song I had forgotten about and, and from working in AC radio. I was like, oh, yeah. I was like, what's on up? Like, what was the hit on up? Forever and always? Because I'm keeping you forever and for always. We will be together all of our days. Wanna wake up every morning to your sweet face. Always. Here, here's something that happens too, right? So, like, after this, after Up, there's like sort of this weird hiatus. And at first, it looks like exhaustion, which is like well deserved, right? Because she's been touring for like three years. 2004, we get this greatest hits record. Uh, they do a few new songs, and then there's like a soundtrack song, an Ann Murray tribute, that sort of stuff. But she doesn't come back to the limelight until 2011. So she's gone for almost a decade. Now, wow. what, what isn't made apparent, and I'm not sure when this breaks, but in 2003, she gets Lyme disease. And really? She, yeah. This is like a sort of not well-known thing about her. She gets Lyme disease, and it develops in her vocal cords this... Oh my. I forget what it is called. It's like not distortion, just just something that messes up her vocal cords. So it actually changes the sound of her voice. And so there's this period where for a couple of years, the like she keeps going to the press or her people keep going to the press. It's like new Shania, you know, stuff is coming. New Shania stuff is coming. And this is early, early ish internet. Right. So like, you know, you're starting to hear rumors about this sort of thing and it doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come. And that's why is because during all of this, she's actually having to sort of relearn how to sing in some ways. It's crazy. Man. Yeah. And so I got us here. It's in this gap between 
2004, 2003, and 2011, where the core story that answers the core question that we were asked way back, way back up at the top of this episode, um, that's where this takes place. May 15th, 2008, it breaks in the press that possibly the most lucrative partnership in music history since the Beatles, uh, it's breaking up. Shania and Mutt are separating. Yeah, and this wasn't just, you know, irreconcilable differences at all, right? No. So, <laughs> no, absolutely not. It, we're about to enter another one of those sections of the show where my sources switch from being reputable music publications to being tabloid magazines. This happened a few Ooh. weeks ago. <laughs> Weekly World News. What are we, are we going to learn about Bat Boy and Shania Twain? Because <laughs> that's where I want this episode to go, Bat Boy. I will say, I, I did not use the Weekly World News, but I did use Us Weekly. There's a timeline uh, of the following things we're about to talk about. That's in the show notes if you want to see it. Um, yeah. and, so, and wait, they had a... They had a kid. Oh, right? I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. So after the tour and before the Lyme disease, they have a kid. So like 2001. And so when the son enters the picture, the couple starts traveling. And at some point they have to go to Switzerland. And I don't understand exactly what happened here, but I believe it's while they're in Switzerland that Shania decides that she needs some help. And so she hires... I don't think it's a nanny necessarily. I think it's like a personal assistant, somebody who's like yes. helping her just in general. Yeah. And it's a woman named Marie Ann, and Marie Ann is married to a guy named Frederick, or Freddie mm-hmm. as I like to call him, just for fun and the, the purposes yeah. of the, writing this. Uh, and they, the four of them, so Marie Ann comes to work for Shania, and they, but they are together a lot and traveling a lot and stuff, and they become really, really good friends, sort of becomes her best friend. And Frederick, is a I think he's up at like I think he works for Nestle so he's he's like a traveling businessman and stuff right but the four of them become pretty serious so Mutt and Frederick hang out and Marianne and Shania are together all the time and working together all the time um and this is like early 2000s so like I, I around when the when the kid is born from what I can tell um and and then on that day in May of 2008 Mutt comes to Shania and says he wants a divorce. But he won't give her a reason. And Shania's shocked. And she can't talk about it with Mud because he won't talk about it. So who do you turn to if your spouse has you, come you, to you and said they want a divorce? You go to your paid assistant that you just you hired. Or, or, or your best your, friend. Or your best friend. They might be the same person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, or maybe or maybe your assistant's husband. So you, you see where this is going. There's an Oprah interview years later where Shania will say this. I said, Marie Ann, do you think Mutt's acting strange? And she said, no, I don't see anything strange. And so she keeps pressing and, and she's like, Mutt, why are, why do you want to leave? And he's like, Oh, we've just grown apart. Right. And then one day, remember Freddie? Uh, yeah, Freddie, I do. Marie Ann's husband, Frederick calls Shania. Classic, Romance movie bullshit. Freddie's cleaning some things up at the house and he finds some hotel receipts, some phone bills. He finds lingerie that he does not recognize in his wife's luggage. And so he confronts Marianne and she, I guess, eventually, I, I don't know, he somehow figures out because Mutt and Marianne are still trying to be tight-lipped about this, saying that like isn't happening. But at some point, he figures it out. He goes to them and he's like, you guys have to go tell Shania. And they won't do it. So Frederick calls Shania 
And Shania feels so betrayed by the whole idea of this that she wants to do another classic movie bullshit thing, which is she calls Marie Anne without her telling her that she knows and tries to get her to confess. You know, just sort of leaves it open to see if she'll she'll give up the ghost. <laughs> Quote, I wanted to give her the opportunity to tell me herself without me accusing her. And guess what? Uh, Marianne denies it and then changes her fucking phone number. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing to hide. <laughs> it doesn't look like guilty behavior, does it? Uh, yeah. So as you might imagine, like this devastates Shania. Because not only is this the guy she built a life with and had a kid with, this is the guy she built her fucking career with. And so she is yoked in perception, in pop culture. She's gone through this tough period where she has been relearning to sing uh, and has not been able to do the thing that she built her entire life on with him. Absolutely crazy. uh, And uh, her best friend. And she's losing her best friend in the process, too. And she has nobody to turn to, because who understands this? Who could possibly fathom what this is like? It's Freddy, the uh, jilted husband, my that is, friend. That is true. I, I know guess, how this... I know what square we're going. I, I guess this is true. I guess there is one person who sort of understands, and that's the other, the other jilted lover. Uh, so here's a quote. We slowly became very, very good friends. We had many months of just trying to make sense of everything. Holding each other up was a very difficult time emotionally for both of us. And we really found something very beautiful in the end and unexpected. And and by that, they mean that they start to date a little in 2009. They get engaged in 2010 and they will marry in 2011. Yeah. And you know, they're both couples are together. Still. It's crazy. And I will say, like, listen, I know what like is a talented guy. We've spent a lot of time fawning over him on this. But uh if we're just looking based on looks, have you seen Frederick? Uh we we he is a handsome he is a handsome man. <laughs> he is much better yeah. looking than Mutt Lang. I don't yeah. I don't know what's going on with Marianne. I don't know, you know, I'm sure Mutt is a charming guy, but wow. Uh so and if you know much about Shania's career, after this lull, after this tabloid scandal, uh she recovers from vocal issues. She's gone through this emotional upheaval. She goes back to touring in 2015. She takes on residences in Vegas, which is a big deal, which is now sort of circled back to being something respectable to do. Um, right. And and she will tour again this summer. And and she's back at sort of another high point in her game without him. Has a new him. record up. And she yeah, has a new record up. And she's putting out a new record. And, and it's worth pointing out, you know, because we're recording this, in the aftermath of Taylor Swift selling out three stadium shows in Nashville back to back to back nights. It's hard to see a world where Taylor Swift exists without Shania Twain. That's right on, man. She's the one true enough. She's still the one. She's still the one I want to. I will say a last fun Shania Twain, uh, little anecdote here that I, my daughter and I went to see, uh, Samia, uh, play recently a play a club show is great. And if you don't know Sammy, go check out her record. She's an amazing singer songwriter. But uh, she has a, a tight band that she travels with, and they said that there's this point in the show every night where they uh, they bring out the opener and they yell from the stage, "Hey, just we're gonna play a cover that we uh, like a request that we've never like we've never played before. We're just gonna try to vamp on stage and see if we can do it. And this is I guess a bit they've been doing." 
And so they're like, what should we play? And someone in the back of the house yells, still the one. And she goes, Shania Twain. And they were like, yeah. And they fucking did it. Like it was rough, but it was awesome. Like just to see it. I mean, like I love that anecdote because it sort of illustrates exactly everything we're talking about when we talk about this person and this duo of people and what they what they brought and sculpted to where 25 years down the road you have a young performer in a different genre who still unabashedly is like hell yeah let's play Shania Twain right yeah and if she can get on stage and Harry Styles gets on stage with her it definitely shows how relevant she is at being almost 60 you know yeah hell yeah if you've got something you want us to investigate if you got something you want us to get into like carrie did carrie there you go yes that's true they traded husbands i mean i I don't really know another way to put it i think that's right traded husbands traded up we are the story guys at gmail.com that's how you get in touch with us Uh, instagram is backslash uh, rock and roll bedtime stories you can uh, hang out on patreon with us too. get bonus episodes every month uh patreon.com backslash rock and roll bedtime stories and we are about to launch be watching the instagram be watching uh, our website etc for information about a chance for you to go to louder than life music festival happening September in our hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Headliners like Foo Fighters, Weezer, Queens of the Stone Age. It's going to be a blast. We'll tell you how to win tickets. Be watching our, our socials, etc. It's going to be a really good time. And, and Murdoch and I are going to go. Yeah, I took I took two days off. Yeah, dude. Hell yeah. yeah. I, I, yeah like, sure. I like your style. Um, <laughs> hey, what should people keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.